From the banks of the Colorado River in Lake Mead to the homes and businesses in Southern Nevada, welcome to Water Smarts, the podcast pumping from the heart of Las Vegas, where we engage with the experts who keep the water flowing throughout Southern Nevada. I'm Bronson Mack. And I'm Crystal Zelke. From how we treat it, deliver it, use it, protect it, and conserve it, the Water Smarts podcast is all about water in Southern Nevada. We hope to make you a little smarter about the one thing that keeps us all connected, water. Hey, Crystal, how are you today? I'm great. I'm excited for today's podcast. I am too. Good. We're talking about poop again. If that doesn't excite our listeners right now to get them as excited as you and I are about to have this conversation, then I I don't know what we're doing here. That's the best tease right there. But in all seriousness, we, um, you know, we started this podcast. Can you believe it? About a year and a half ago, you know, it was the earlier days of the pandemic. We were, for us, we were still hunkered down at home, working from home. We weren't going into the office. Life was a lot different when we started this podcast. It sure was. We were wearing masks. We were all being careful about the surfaces that we touched and the people that we talked to and, you know, didn't see some family members and maintain distance from everybody. And, you know, it was around that time when we started this podcast that we had Dr. Dan Garrity on from the Southern Nevada Water Authority's research and development team. And some of the work that Dan was doing to monitor for the coronavirus really has Uh, revealed itself as being very helpful to our community over the past couple of years. You know, Dan's work in identifying concentrations of the SARS-CoV-2, as he always calls it, if I recall correctly, SARS-CoV-2 virus within the wastewater. And then he was able to develop a partnership with UNLV. And we're going to hear a little bit about that because today with us on the Water Smarts podcast, we have Dr. Dan Garrity, Principal Research Scientist for the Southern Nevada Water Authority. And Dr. Edwin O, Associate Professor of Neurogenetics and Precision Medicine with UNLV. Dr. O and Dr. Garrity, welcome to the Water Smarts Podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Hey, before we get started, obviously, I want to give credence and credit to your education level here. You are both doctors. For this podcast, are you okay if we just talk to you as Ed and Dan? Is that all right? Absolutely. Yeah, I like the sound of that. All right. We appreciate that just makes it a little easier for me to get my words out. So Dan, hey, let's start with you. You were on the Water Smarts podcast last year, just around this time. And we actually have an entire episode that is available for our listeners. If they want to go back and listen to it, it's titled Poops Don't Lie. That's right. Poops Don't Lie. And we go in depth on how your team has partnered with Ed's team at UNLV and doing wastewater epidemiology or what's commonly known as wastewater surveillance to track and identify COVID-19 in the community. So for those listeners who didn't hear that podcast, would you mind, Dan, just explain a little bit about what wastewater surveillance is and how common is it for water agencies to dive into this type of research? Sure. It's a great question. So wastewater surveillance gives us an opportunity to understand basically anything that's happening in the community. So as people, anything that we do, any anything that we consume, there's traces of that that's going to wind up in feces, in urine, or people just dumping things down the sink. And so by looking for different targets, we can understand what's happening in the local community. So it's, it's almost like sewer anthropology. So learning about human nature by what we can find in wastewater. In terms of how common this is, 
Utilities typically don't do it in the, the context of what we're doing with COVID. We often look for what's in wastewater to understand the implications downstream. So how is it going to impact the receiving water in the environment once that highly treated wastewater is discharged into the environment? How is it going to impact drinking water supplies and things like that? So our focus is typically on the downstream end. But what we realized with COVID is that there's an opportunity to look at what's happening upstream. So what's happening in the community and how can we use that information to better respond to public health issues like COVID, for example. And Dan, one of the first things that your team did when the coronavirus pandemic first hit in 2020 was to make sure that that virus wasn't in our drinking water supply and especially the treated drinking water that's being delivered throughout our community. So can you just talk a little bit about how SNWA made certain that that virus wasn't in the drinking water supply that ends up getting delivered to everybody? Sure. So as part of the the R&D group at the Southern Nevada Water Authority, one of our our goals is to make sure that emerging challenges are not going to be an issue for drinking water quality and public health. When SARS-CoV-2 and COVID hit the scene, we wanted to make sure that that was true. And so we started by looking at various points in our water system in Southern Nevada to see where it showed up, where it disappeared, and ultimately what to do about that. So when we found it in raw sewage, that was the first indication, okay, it winds up in some aspect of the water supply. But as we moved through the wastewater treatment plant, we saw that it quickly disappeared even before it went out into the Las Vegas wash and further downstream into Lake Mead and then ultimately our drinking water supply. So we didn't see that genetic signature even after the first few levels of treatment in the wastewater treatment plant. So that was the first good sign. So once we realized that it wasn't really making it through the wastewater treatment plant, another level of confidence was looking at the effects of of the different treatment processes on the wastewater side. And if it did ever challenge our drinking water supply, what were the implications there? And so by looking at literature from previous viruses, so we had SARS-CoV-1, for example, in the past. What did we learn from SARS-CoV-1 that we could apply to this, this new virus? So it was actually very similar in structure. And so what we were able to find is that even the most basic treatment processes that we have available to us are very effective for these viruses. And so in the wastewater treatment plant, the, the drinking water treatment plants, we knew that we had a, a lot of barriers to protect us if that viral genetic material ever made it to that point. And so those multiple levels of confidence uh, pretty quickly gave us an indication that this was not going to be an issue for drinking water. So, Dan, once the Water Authority was certain that COVID-19 was not in our drinking water, your team, along with Ed and the UNLV research team, started looking at wastewater samples to track the virus. How did that research partnership develop? Were you already working on some wastewater surveillance projects with UNLV, or was the COVID-19 pandemic the first time the two research groups collaborated? I'll let Ed talk about his interesting background and how he came into the the wastewater epidemiology field. But on our side, we've been very involved with the local wastewater utilities in understanding what's happening on the wastewater side, what the implications are for drinking water. So that that partnership already existed throughout Southern Nevada. And so what wastewater surveillance related to SARS-CoV-2 gave us is an opportunity to start collaborating with new people, particularly people who had a stronger connection with the public health side or even the medical school. And then that's where Ed jumped in and was really able to help us out and provide expertise that we didn't have with our existing team. Ed, do you have more to add to that? Hey there, Crystal. Yeah, this is where I usually uh, give my excuse and share with everyone, I'm just a human geneticist. (laughs) And my whole knowledge of wastewater really stemmed from conversations with Dan and his team. I, I learned so much about 
the value of taking wastewater and being able to deconvolute this into information that might be useful for better understanding human health. So when I first met Dan, I, I remember he shared a piece of data with me on how he was tracking SARS-CoV-2 in one of his facilities. And as case counts were going up, he was showing me that SARS-CoV-2 viral levels were also going up in the wastewater. And that was a holy cow moment for me because it told me that if you can track a pathogen with this wastewater, you could potentially better understand its identity the letters that make up the genome of this pathogen. In my history, I'm used to studying the four letters of our alphabet and how these four letters, the nucleotides, the A, G, T, C of our human genome, make up three billion nucleotides. And so when Dan was showing me this information, I thought, oh, well, you know, this pathogen has 30,000 nucleotides, 30,000 letters. It should be much easier than looking at the human genome right? 3 billion versus 30,000, this should be a piece of cake. And boy, was I wrong. Because when I started trying to take samples from Dan and work with him and, and, and sequence this pathogen, we had failure after failure after failure after failure. And it did not feel good <laughs> because my excuse of being a human geneticist did not hold up. And as a result, we iterated and iterated. And finally, we got to a point where we are starting to sequence more and more of the genome Finally, after about maybe six months of doing what we were doing, we got to the point where we felt really confident that we could collect all 30,000 nucleotides, all 30,000 letters of this pathogen and be able to characterize the different identities of variants circulating in our community. And I just want to point out that I went to a conference a few weeks ago. Everybody knows Ed now. So when I go to these conferences, they're like, do you work with Ed? So he, he's famous now for all the work that he's been doing. But I think it would be good to probe his background a little bit more. So I don't think people really understand how much Ed's research has changed. So Ed, if you can talk a little bit more about what kind of research you were doing before essentially August 2020 and how different it is from what you're doing now. Yeah, I think uh, going back maybe 12 years, we were starting to use next generation sequencing techniques to interrogate the human genome for mutations that might give rise to the pathologies that we were seeing in humans with neurological deficits, mainly children. We were, we were using sequencing technologies to look through 3 billion nucleotides to find that one change that might be responsible for blindness, that might be responsible for anosmia or the loss of smell, uh, one change that might be responsible responsible for kidney defects. And so over the last decade or so, we've been continuing to use these technologies to sequence more and more human beings to figure out how we can go from nucleotides, from letters in our genome to what we see in humans. And again, I think when, when I met Dan, the first thing I was thinking of was, wow, if there is this much virus around the world, it must be mutating. So if we can sequence a virus from South Africa or from the United Kingdom or from this continent, we should be able to track mutations. And it's been one of the most, uh, the, <laughs> the biggest highlights since moving to Las Vegas almost four or five years ago, working together with Dan and his team. 
what an amazing jump going from studying billions and billions of parts of data to what you've been doing with the SARS virus. I mean, that is just extremely impressive. And and I guess I should say thank you. <laughs> thank you for putting those efforts forward to help the community learn and know a little bit more about not just this virus, but the mutations or the variants as they've become more commonly known. So over the past year or so, the Southern Nevada Water Authority and UNLV working together, tracking the virus and its prevalence throughout the community. And through that partnership, you kind of each have your own roles. And Dan, I know that your team does a little bit of the dirty work in coordinating directly with those wastewater agencies. And they do such a good job, obviously, treating wastewater that it can safely be released back to the environment. But, you know, those samples you were collecting really do help to determine what the presence and the concentrations of the virus might be in various areas of the valley. And then you provide those samples over to Ed's team, right? Can you just talk a little bit about SNWA's role in that in that process and kind of that coordination of the sample collection all the way over to where Ed works his magic on the variants? I would say our work was the dirty work to start off, but Ed has definitely rolled up his sleeves over the past few months, and I'd say he's doing more of the dirty work than we are now. But we we definitely play different and both important roles. So we've been the main connection to the wastewater utilities in town. My partner and I, Katerina Papp, she was on the, the previous podcast. She and I go out to each facility every Monday. We collect the weekly samples. We bring it back to the lab process those samples, quantify the level of SARS-CoV-2 genetic material that's in those samples. And then we take the remaining sample, bring it over to UNLV with Ed's team. And then he figures out which variants are in there based off of the sequencing work that he's been talking about. But he's definitely changed the type of research that he's doing. And he's been down in the, in the manholes just like we were early on. So, Ed, wastewater surveillance helped researchers determine the prevalence of the virus in the community. What else are you able to glean about the virus and the pandemic using wastewater surveillance? Yeah, yeah. So, so like I mentioned in the beginning, and, and this is really the honest truth, we learned the most basic components of wastewater surveillance from Dan and his team and from pretty much lifting up a manhole cover. You know, this is this is an idea that has never dawned my mind. And when I told uh, folks in my lab that we were going to head out to various locations and lift up manhole covers and start scooping up sewage, everyone gave me that look that I was crazy. <laughs> and um, and it and I certainly felt uh, a bit odd versus what our conversations would usually sound like in the past, where we would go into a model organism, into a mouse or into a cell line and be able to take out a kidney or take out a liver or take out a certain cellular component from a stem cell, we were now going to go to a manhole and take out sewage. So that conversation got kind of interesting because we all did not know what a manhole cover would even look like. We thought all manhole covers were the same. And and again, this was a learning experience for us. But as we slowly picked up this information, we realized that you could go out to manholes that were closer to communities, to zip codes. We could go to a building and be able to get into the sewage from a manhole that contains sewage from that building. We could go to a manhole with sewage stemming from the Las Vegas Strip. We could go to a manhole that had sewage from a school. The type of resolution was really up to us. And that was just amazing. And so as a result, we've done a lot of this together with Dan. 
and a, a number of collaborators at UNLV and DRI. And we've come to realize that if you can get closer to a community, you can better understand the amount of virus that's circulating in that community. And you can also better characterize the type of variant that might be circulating within that community. And this gives us a better idea of whether or not case counts, human infections, might follow soon thereafter. So this is specific for SARS-CoV-2, what we've been doing more recently. But we've also come to realize that if you can do this for this pathogen, SARS-CoV-2, oh my goodness, you can probably do this for a lot of other pathogens, which is what we're exploring. That's a great story. Super cool stuff. So, Dan, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, SNWA was using wastewater surveillance as a way to monitor and study certain constituents in the wastewater. So things like personal care items, pharmaceuticals. Is there anything you learned during the pandemic that helped move this research forward or more to the mainstream? Like what were some of the constituents you studied before the pandemic? And then during, did you find any new techniques or discoveries that you believe will help shape this field of study? I'd say there's a few different ways to look at it. So from what we had been doing previously, our research group at the the Water Authority had a great history of looking for contaminants of emergent concern, things that weren't regulated at the time that were coming onto the scene in the water industry. We wanted to make sure that we were staying ahead uh, of the curve in terms of what was coming down the pipeline. And so we had established those relationships with the wastewater utilities, the methods that were required to look for pharmaceuticals, forever chemicals, people may have heard of those, even illicit drugs and metabolites. So that previous work that we had done and the relationships that we developed, that helped us really get into SARS-CoV-2 wastewater surveillance very quickly. And so the whole world focused on this problem over the last two years. And so it wasn't just us. So what we've learned from what we've been doing with SARS-CoV-2, what others have been doing is going to help us really improve this tool for the, unfortunately, the next pandemic that's going to come. And it's also going to help us do a better job with what we have been doing in the past. So looking at these pharmaceuticals and wastewater, understanding where these things are coming from so that we can try to take that out of the system and not wind up discharging those things to the environment. I think it goes in both directions. What we have taken from the past, what we're taking from COVID, I think overall, we're just going to have a better product with this wastewater surveillance tool. And Ed, the same question to you. You sort of alluded to this, that in doing this research, you kind of had that aha moment of, wow, what else can we find out by doing this sort of surveillance? So what's come out of that for you as far as research? Wow. Yeah. So the aha moments, there are so many aha moments in in working together with Dan. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. Gosh, it's almost two years ago. Well, maybe a year and a half ago, back in December of 2020, we were working together with Dan, looking at his samples and analyzing his samples. This was a time when the UK variant or the Alpha variant was circulating in the world. And we were looking at some of the facilities that that Dan had been sampling for him. And we were able to sequence the Alpha variant from at least one or two of the different facilities. And that was pretty darn amazing to us because at that point in time, back in December 2020, we had yet to identify a single human being with the Alpha variant in Southern Nevada. And lo and behold, a month later, four weeks later, five weeks later, we found our first case of Alpha. This was a a big aha moment for us because it really told us that if you are able to sequence the genome, you can find a circulating variant 
a lot quicker from this sample, wastewater, a pooled sample from a community, a lot faster potentially than some communities that may not be analyzing as many people, that may not be testing as many people. So that was really our first aha moment. And then shortly thereafter, over the next few months after Alpha, it was Epsilon, it was Lambda, it was Delta. We were able to see that using the wastewater, you could identify these variants before or pretty much at the same time that we were identifying humans with these variants in Southern Nevada. And then more recently, oh wow, for Omicron, for BA.2, we started sampling from a manhole that was closer to the Las Vegas Strip. And we were able to identify BA.1 or Omicron back in early December. I think it was something like uh, December 7th or December 8th. All of us were expecting this to happen, but we didn't think that we would find it that soon. And shortly thereafter, one week thereafter, we found our first human infections. And uh, since that time, BA.1 is a highly transmissible variant that has increased in our wastewater. And then pretty much we saw an increase in cases. We've been tracking BA.2 more recently, and this has been also another aha moment, but really for opposite reasons. The, the virus has taught us so many different lessons about what it might mean to have a genome that is circulating in the wastewater versus how much of it is in the wastewater versus how much case counts we're seeing in a community. I, I would add uh, a few things to Ed's description. The, the variant surveillance has been such an amazing addition to the, the project for a lot of the reasons that Ed just talked about. But just seeing how each variant has been different has been the aha moment for me. So with Alpha, for example, Ed talked about how we saw these intermittent hits of Alpha. So we'd seen it one location, it would disappear, it would pop up again a few weeks later. But then when Delta came on the scene, you could see how transmissible it was because it, it eventually slowly wiped out all those other variants and became the dominant genome in these wastewater samples. And then fast forward to what Ed was talking about with Omicron, the same thing happened. So you take Delta, which was this really powerful variant, and it wiped it out in a matter of like two weeks. And so the same level of uh, dominance of that variant happened, but the time frame was so much shorter. And again, it just shows you how transmissible Omicron was relative to Delta. And so without the sequencing component, without the variant identification, we lose that whole, the whole resolution there in terms of what it means and transmissibility. And so we can only rely on the concentrations, which are good, but having the variants is such a great addition to the project. Absolutely amazing. I mean, this wastewater surveillance really helps to serve from what I'm understanding here as an early indicator. You're able to detect not just the presence of any of these variants, but, you know, the concentrations of them, perhaps even some of the locations or areas of the community in which it is more prevalent. And with that, then that information can help doctors in the medical field and clinical staff staff up if they need to or be prepared for actual human infections increasing because we're able to get a little bit of an early warning indicator. Is that about right? Yeah, you're talking about the early indication. I'll give you the, the flip side of that. Uh, more recently with Omicron, Ed was able to see Omicron hit Southern Nevada before we saw it in the, the confirmed cases. And then quickly after that, we saw the dramatic rise in wastewater concentrations and cases as well. But on, on the tail end of that, we saw the wastewater concentrations drop before we started to see the cases drop. And so people were worried that conditions were getting worse over time 
But we were able to say, no, actually, the wastewater is saying that we've already hit our peak and things are getting better. And so when we got to that stage, fast forward a few more weeks, this is when Governor Sisolak decided to lift the mask mandate. So having that, that wastewater data as a completely different source of data gave them more confidence to make that decision that they might not be able to do with just the case data because it took so much longer for the case data to finally wind up where the wastewater data had already gone to, which is a low level. That's absolutely amazing. I mean, (laughs) wastewater surveillance is almost like a little crystal ball where you get a little sense of how this virus is, is going to affect the community, but you get it earlier than you're actually seeing it on the clinical side as far as infections go. I mean, just unbelievable stuff. This is amazing research. So what's next? I mean, what is next for SNWA and this UNLV partnership? How is this wastewater surveillance going to move forward throughout the community? What do you see? I think the the true power of wastewater surveillance is really coming to the forefront now. So we have low levels of infection in the community. We have lower levels of testing than we had seen in the past. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And so Ed alluded to BA2. One of the big questions right now is BA2 is all over the place. Some places like the UK are surging right now. We're not. And so the question that we keep getting is, are you seeing an increase in the wastewater? Are we seeing an increase in infections? And so the wastewater surveillance data is agnostic to clinical testing. It doesn't matter if people go get tested. It's going to give us a reliable indicator of what's actually happening. So because we don't see this consistent increase in wastewater right now, we can give people confidence that we're not seeing a surge in cases like they're seeing in the UK. We are recording this here in early April, so that's where the case counts are now. Ed, how about you? What do you see? What's the future of this partnership in wastewater surveillance? I truly believe that this is an amazing resource, uh, sewage, wastewater, and it gives us an opportunity to think really hard how we can operationalize this whole project together with the health district, right? Because what we're hoping is that once you get this early warning system, the health district, public health agencies across the country will be able to mobilize quickly to put together testing centers at the right places. A lot of these public health agencies will be able to deploy the resources where it's most needed. So right now, we're looking at areas within Las Vegas and Henderson. We're also looking in areas outside Las Vegas. We're looking at Moapa Valley. We're looking at Indian Springs. We're looking at Searchlight. So having this information from all of these different locations in Southern Nevada is going to give us more intelligence as to where and when we should be deploying our resources whether it's contact tracing teams, whether it's testing teams, whether it's vaccination teams, I think this type of information is going to give us a lot more confidence in how to do things better, either for SARS-CoV-2 for the next variant or for new viruses as they emerge in our community. So moving forward, this is really some of the ideas that we're thinking really hard about. How do we take all of this information and be able to save in costs Being able to deploy a testing team in a large parking lot or at a stadium, that costs a lot of money. So we need to be very sure about our data and being able to give this information to the right people so that they can then serve the community. Ed, I I know many universities focus on research and partner with other agencies and businesses. How important is it for UNLV to collaborate with SNWA and others on the Wastewater Surveillance Project as well as other research projects you might be working on? 
Yeah, Crystal, that's that's such an important question. I, I, I can say this without any hesitation, that without this collaboration, I don't think it would have been possible for us to do all of these different projects together. We've worked together with Dan, his team. We've worked with the health district. So many different wonderful people at the health district, from the sequencing team to the epidemiologists. And we've also worked with DRI and Clark County School District. And also folks up in Reno, too, in better understanding how our technologies might work not only in Southern Nevada, but also up in Reno. In addition, we've also worked with other folks in different states. And I think what we've learned from this collaboration is that if we do this together, we're more likely to get to the answer a lot faster. This is part of the reason that we collaborated and put this website together, because we want to be able to share this information with the community. We want the community to know how much wastewater viral levels are circulating across various zip codes and for them to be able to communicate with us and ask us, what does this mean? Because I think both Dan and myself, we would be happy to sit down with anyone to share a lot more information about what we think this data is telling us. I'll just add in that the the collaborations have been amazing. So we've been able to reach out to the health district and develop a stronger collaboration there. Ed mentioned up in Northern Nevada. And so we've started working with the state public health lab and researchers that are in that institution. And then we have the collaboration with UNLV. So throughout the entire state of Nevada, we have a lot of opportunities to reach people that we didn't have connections to in the past. And so Ed referenced the Empower website where we have the dashboard that's hosted, empower.unlv.edu. And that provides a lot of background about wastewater surveillance. And it actually provides the most recent up-to-date data for the wastewater to see what are the concentrations, what are the variants. And so by having this partnership with all these different institutions, we have better quality data and we're reaching more people. So that's been a great aspect of this project. And once again, that website where you can get more information on this work and see this data in action is empower.unlv.edu. That's empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R dot U-N-L-V dot E-D-U. Give it a visit. Learn a little bit more about this amazing work and partnership that is taking place amongst all of these agencies. We are just about out of time here. SNWA continuing to provide world-class service in a sustainable and adaptive and responsible manner. That is the mission of the organization. This type of a partnership here with our academics in Southern Nevada through UNLV with Dr. O, really rounding out this effort to keep the community informed, provide important information specifically about this pandemic and the coronavirus as it has been affecting all of us. Dr. O and Dr. Garrity, thank you so much for joining us here on the Water Smarts podcast and helping our community be a little bit safer, a little bit healthier, and a little bit smarter when it comes to the prevalence of this virus. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us back. Thanks for having us, Bronson. The Water Smarts podcast is brought to you by the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which reminds you to follow the mandatory seasonal watering restrictions. You can find your assigned watering days on snwa.com. The watering schedule changes with each season, four times each year. Following the seasonal watering restrictions is one of the most important ways you can help conserve water and protect our limited water supply. That's right, Crystal, because saving water is desert living, and we can save billions of gallons of water right here in the Mojave Desert if everyone in the community just followed the seasonal watering restrictions. Not sure when to change your sprinkler clock? Well, SNWA can help. 
Sign up for our text message reminders by texting the word CONSERVE to 85357. That's CONSERVE to 85357. When the watering schedule changes, you'll get a text message reminder, and then you can go out and change your sprinkler clock and stay compliant and avoid those water waste fines. In fact, pull out your mobile device right now and text CONSERVE to 85357. The text reminders help you avoid water waste fines by letting you know it's time to change your clock and remind you to water only on your assigned days. Not sure what those days are? Go to snwa.com for an app that lets you type in your address and get your watering schedule. Bronson, I love their enthusiasm. When you think about those first several months, six months of the pandemic, you know, that was an unsure time for a lot of people. A lot of things were unknown. And they came in and just got to work. And I really appreciate that about, you know, how much they seem to enjoy what they do. It's really good to see that the work that these two very, very intelligent experts are working on is expanding and just the benefit that this has to us. Just like you said, early in the pandemic, there was no knowledge or understanding of whether or not this virus would be a challenge for water supplies. And pretty quickly, Dan's work in partnering with Dr. O, they were able to determine, you know, our wastewater treatment processes here in Southern Nevada were doing such a good job treating that wastewater to near drinking water standards that they were also able to eliminate any signal of that virus. And that gave us obviously the confidence to be able to continue to return all of our indoor water use back to Lake Mead, safely returning it to Lake Mead. And every gallon, you know, Crystal, that we put back in Lake Mead, we can take another gallon out and bring it into the valley through the drinking water treatment process. And this is how we stretch our water supply. So you can just see how important it was for us very early on to know whether or not this virus was going to have any implications for us from a water quality standpoint. So again, forward thinking, being prepared, having the expertise, having the facilities and the state-of-the-art laboratory to be able to conduct this kind of research so you can have the confidence. So feel free, grab a glass of tap water, throw some ice in there, give it a spritz of lemon if you need to adjust the taste, but just know that you can drink it with confidence. Am I right or am I right, Crystal? You're right. I'm drinking my water right from my tap right now. Well, there you go. You heard it from the source right here on the Water Smarts podcast. Well, that's it for this episode of the pod. We hope that you will subscribe and join us next time. And if you have any questions that you would like us to address on this podcast, feel free to send them our way. You can email them directly to us at watersmarts at snwa.com or just go to the snwa.com website. You can get us to the contact page. And while you're there, Learn a little bit about water quality. Learn a little bit about water conservation. Make yourself as water smart as you can be because that helps us use our water supply more efficiently. We'll see you here next time on Water Smarts. Water Smarts.